All right, let's hear from the word of the Lord. We're going to go to Hosea 13, verses 1 through 9. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sinned more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Good morning. Let's start praying. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we praise you, Lord. You are the rock of our salvation. You are our redeemer. You are our help. We thank you for your word in the scripture and the way that you revealed yourself to us through it. Um, Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that guide us through hard passages like this, that Hosea, that are uh, hard for us to read. Uh, Father, we pray but that by your Spirit you may help us understand and see um, see you how you are Lord and we pray all these things in Jesus name Amen all throughout scripture God has identified himself to his people as their help God is the help of his people and you know in English this word uh, help you know we, we we love to have help when we need it, but we don't want to need help all the time because we like to be independent. But in Hebrew, the word for help conveys a much deeper meaning. It has a heavy military connotation. It conveys the meaning of divine assistance during war. It conveys the meaning of fortress, shelter, refuge, protection, security, things that we don't ever want it depart from us. God is the helper, the fortress, and the shelter of his people. Unfortunately, as we've seen in the book of Hosea throughout the summer, throughout this summer, the people of God, Israel, historically have been prone to repeating their history over and over and over and over again by rejecting God's role in their lives as their only and sure foundation, as their only and true help. And in chapter 13, Hosea sees this, and he's basically saying, well, that's stupid. <laughs> it is stupid. Um, 
And what we're going to see this morning in chapter 13 is that this chapter is about Hosea ridiculing and admonishing Israel's foolishness in rejecting God's help. Now let us remember that Hosea began his ministry during the final years of the prosperous and politically stable reign of Jeroboam II, not to be confused with Jeroboam I, the first king of the northern kingdom who ruled like many, many years before, before Jeroboam II. It was like 200 years before that. So he, he began his ministry during Jeroboam II, but given the progressive nature of Hosea's prophecies, the oracle of chapter 13 was probably delivered seven kings later, under the last politically stable reign of King Hosea, not to be confused with the prophet Hosea. Is the king Hosea. He was the last king to ever rule the northern kingdom. His names. <laughs> In chapter 13, what Hosea the prophet has predicted was actually happening. The news of Assyrian invasion was closing in on Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Village after village, fortified city after fortified city were falling. The people haven't listened to Hosea. And Hosea starts by, by summarizing the charges against Israel by beginning in verse 1 with a historical preface that reveals the magnitude of Israel's sin. Verse 1 says, When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. Historical preface, Ephraim was one of the twelve tribes of the nation of, of Israel. And what the prophet Hosea is saying here is that there was a time when the position of the tribe of Ephraim within Israel was so superior that even his speaking provoked trembling among the rest of the tribes. Ephraim was respected. Ephraim was listened to. Ephraim had authority. But what's really important to notice is that Ephraim didn't gain this authority because of its own merits. But because Ephraim was exalted by God. As you know, in the culture of the ancient Near East, the oldest son, the firstborn, is the one who had more preeminence within a family. And therefore, the youngest son was the least important. Well, Ephraim was the youngest son of Jacob. Furthermore, he wasn't even Jacob's son. He was his grandson. That's how young he was. He was adopted by Jacob. So Ephraim should have been of no account, really. He should have been no important at all, and his tribe as well. But he received the blessing of the firstborn from Jacob. And Jacob's prophetic blessing became realized in Ephraim's leading role among the tribes. Ephraim was exalted. It was an Ephraimite, Joshua, who led Israel into the promised land. It was an Ephraimite, Jeroboam I, to whom God crowned as king over the ten tribes of the northern kingdom when the nation of Israel was divided. Israel had reached its apex as a united nation under the reigns of David and Solomon, both from the tribe of Judah. But as we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, when Solomon sinned, God decided to take the kingdom away from Solomon. But because of the promise God made to David, God didn't take the whole kingdom away from Solomon. He left him with just one more tribe. So there were the tribes of Benjamin and Judah in the south forming the southern kingdom of Judah. And there were the rest of the ten tribes in the north forming the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And God chose Jeroboam the first, an Ephraimite, as king over the ten tribes. When Solomon knew what God was going to do, Solomon persecuted Jeroboam. Solomon sought to kill Jeroboam. But God saved him. God helped him. And God established him as king. Ephraim, through Jeroboam, was exalted. And Ephraim's preeminence among the tribes was such that his name is often used in the Old Testament to refer to the whole northern kingdom of Israel. Just as the people of Israel were the least among the nations and yet exalted by God in his grace, as we read in Deuteronomy 7, so too Ephraim was the least among the children of Israel and yet exalted by God in his grace. He was the exalted one among the exalted ones. See, this helps us understand the magnitude of Ephraim's sin. They were given so much. But as verse 1 ends, they incurred in guilt through Baal and died. Do you know what was the first act of Jeroboam, the first as ruler of the northern kingdom? This is in 1 Kings uh, chapter 12. He said in his heart, You know, God saved me, God held me, He crowned me as king of the Trent tribes, but He didn't cover all the bases. You know, the temple of God is still in Jerusalem, which is the capital of the kingdom of Judah. So my people is going to have to go there to worship God. But if they keep going there, they're going to accept uh, the king of Judah as their king and they're going to kill me. So here is what we're going to do. We're going to make, wait for it, please don't say calves, calves. We're going to make calves. That's what we're going to do. You didn't see that one coming, huh? That way people won't have to go to Jerusalem to praise God there and they can worship something here. Isn't that an innovative idea? Well, yeah, except of course Exodus 32, remember? When uh, our forefathers were wandering in the desert before entering the promised land and they decided to make golden calves and God got really angry and he almost killed us. Other than that, it's a terrific idea. And you know what? I think this time it's really going to work. See, whatever Jeroboam intended the calf to represent, a pedestal for God or God himself, Hosea identifies the making of the calves as part of Baal worship, as we see in verse 2. And the problem was that because Ephraim was the particular representative of the ten northern tribes, Ephraim had a distinct responsibility in the fate of the kingdom. And Ephraim, who was given much, introduced sin in the kingdom. See, verse 1 is about uh, Ephraim's history, is what they did in the past. Verse 2 was the present of another kingdom in those moments. Verse 2 says, And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices, kiss calves. In verse 2, Hosea says that up to that day, they haven't stopped. They have continued worshiping Baal or Baal. You know, kissing the image of the deity was actually part of the ritual of Baal. And this is when Hosea begins to ridicule the foolishness of the northern kingdom of Israel. He's like saying, Joe, geniuses, um, you know about those uh, metal images that you're worshiping? You made those. 
You know that, right? I mean, unless you have a special power to bring them to life, those things are dead. I mean, if you have the power to bring those images to life, then you're an idiot because you're worshiping them. You don't need to. You don't need to worship them. You, you have the power. But if you don't have the power, then you're still an idiot because they're dead and you're worshiping them. <laughs> and this is... They were worshiping dead things. And this is what Psalm 115 says about worshiping dead things. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, and this is the important part, those who make them become like them. We become like the very things that we worship. Israel's idols were dead, and therefore Israel was dead. Israel's idols were dead images that were falsely deemed to be alive. They were false, they were deceitful, and they were promiscuous. And the Israelites didn't trust God to be their help. They sought help, they sought salvation by means of what was actually dead. They were foolish. So verse 1 was about their past, verse 2 was about their present, and verse 3 is about their future. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Mist, dew, chaff, smoke. All four comparisons that are used throughout the Bible to describe the fate of the wicked. Like mist, like dew, like chaff, and like smoke, Israel was bound to quickly disappear. And see, the meaning of this verse becomes all the more evident when we understand that this prophecy probably comes from the middle years of Hosea's reign, Hosea the king, when Israel was at the door of being wiped out by Assyria and taken into exile. And when it was all too clear that the king would persist in seeking solution by means of trusting the pagan cult of Baal and by means of trusting political conspiracy. History repeated itself over and over and over again. Israel sinned in the past, Israel continued sinning in the present, and therefore Israel had no future. But at this point, God was not done with Israel's indictment. He sees them and he says, you know, all these things you've done, they're foolish. They're bad. They're, they're bad in, in themselves. I mean, you've been fornicating. You've, you've become promiscuous. And that's bad in itself. But you're married. You're not single. You're married. Not only you're married, but you're married to me. I am your husband. We must remember that the whole book of Hosea is framed by the picture of marriage. Because after all, our marriages, marriages in general, is designed to be a picture of God's relationship with his people. That's what God is saying in verse 4. four. He's saying, you've joined yourself to the Baals, verse 4, but I am Yahweh, your God. 
See, when we, when we see the word Lord written in capitals, that's, that's His name. That's the Lord's name. And He's given them their name. He's saying, you join yourself to the Baals, but you were joined to me first. And notice the language of intimacy there. I am your God. You are mine, and I am yours. You are my people, and I am your God. I am Yahweh, your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was me who took you out of the land of Egypt to be my people. It was me who took care of you in the wilderness. It was me, not Baal. It was me who chose you to be my bride. And you said, you willingly said, I do. You made your vows to me. I'm your only husband. I'm your only help. Besides me, there's no savior. God is reminding them of the covenant they made with him because they have forgotten about it. In their idolatry, they have committed spiritual adultery. They have transgressed the marriage between them and Yahweh. And the tragedy uh, in all this is that there are consequences for forgetting the covenant and they were warned about those consequences. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 23 says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God and make a carved image, the form of anything that Yahweh your God has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Therefore, because they have forgotten the covenant, because they have rejected his help, Israel was not behaving as God's people. Israel was not behaving as God's bride. And Yahweh himself was now to enforce the, the curses that Israel's covenantal unfaithfulness have, had invoked upon them. Verse 7 and nine, to 9 says, So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear of her cups. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. I destroy you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. This is the, the passage in which the judgment against, against Israel is ever more intense. In no other passage of Hosea is God's judgment on Israel more fiercely described. Because Israel was against their helper, Yahweh no longer was going to play the role of the shepherd who protects the flock, but the role of a lion, of a leopard, of a bear, all of those ravenous, ravenous wild animals that are the enemy of the flock. How unsettling must it have been for Israel to hear these words? And how much more unsettling it must have been for them when we understand that there is a war play in this, in this passage? See, in verse 7, the English phrase, I will lurk, is just one word in Hebrew. One word. And that Hebrew word sounds and is written almost exactly as the Hebrew word for Assyria. So where we hear, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way, Israel might have heard, like a leopard, Assyria beside the way. 
Assyria, their threat, the very thing they were seeking salvation from. With these three metaphors, God is telling them that he will use the violence of the coming attack by the Assyrians as their punishment. These gruesome and graphic images are then accompanied by God's bitter and sharp ridicule of Israel's foolishness. God is like saying, Israel, you still claim to be seeking for help, but if you're against me, whom exactly do you have in mind? Dead man idols? Dead, dead man-made idols? Who, your king? Where is your king? Where is he now? Verse 10. Where is your king now to save you in all your cities? What is he now? Now that you need him most. I'll tell you where he is. He's in prison. That's where he is. You can see it yourself in Second Kings 17.4. Hosea, your king, is already in the hands of Assyria. He's helpless. He cannot help himself. He cannot help you. In First Samuel chapter 8, we can see that Israel asked God, Israel demanded of God, a king like the kings of the other nations. And in his anger, like verse 11 says, that's exactly what God gave them. A king like the kings of the other nations. And now God is not only judging them, but he's ridiculing their foolishness in rejecting his help. And as we just saw, God did not spare words in expressing his seal for the covenant, in expressing his seal for holiness, his holiness, and his righteousness. He did not spare words in describing the savage violence of his wrath. See, these are, these are the kind of passages that we don't really like to read, do we? These are the passages that we like to scheme read or, or, or skip altogether. We don't really like to meditate on these passages. I know I don't, I tell you that. I would have never studied this passage had I not been given the task of preaching it here, in all honesty. Because it is hard for us to see God portrayed in this way. It is hard for us to make sense of it. How a compassionate God that is loving, that is Savior, can possibly do that or even say that. It makes no sense. We prefer to set that aside and focus on the good thing, the good stuff. We prefer to focus on redemptive, compassionate, loving and forgiving character of God, which is good. We, we should do that. But this is where we need to be very, very careful. Because I tell you what, this is precisely why Israel was being judged here in chapter 13. When we consciously choose to magnify a particular characteristic of God and ignore or minimize his other characteristics, we are taking the God of the Bible and we are molding him according to our own preference. We are molding him according to what is convenient for us. We are saying he's, he's more like this and he's like that, but not, not that much like that. And this is what Israel was doing. They were molding God, they were molding Yahweh according to what was convenient for them. See, back when uh, Jeroboam I made the calves, he didn't say, 
let's forget about Yahweh and let's, let's uh, worship this other God, this new God. He didn't say that. He said this, and I quote, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up of the land of Egypt. In other, word, other words, he said, People of Israel, these calves, these calves, are Yahweh. They are Yahweh, the very same Yahweh who brought us up out of Egypt. See how he was choosing bits and pieces from a scripture? Yes, Yahweh took Israel out of Egypt. No, Yahweh does not look like a calf. He was emphasizing one characteristic of God. He was molding God according to what was convenient for him because he wanted God to be in his land and not in Judah. And then the people thought, the people of Israel thought that they were worshiping God. But they weren't. They were worshiping Baal. See, in Hebrew, Baal means master, means lord, means husband. All of those titles that the Israelite and us used to correctly address to God or refer to God. They thought they were worshiping God. And their problem was that they were picking their cues to define and to worship God from the world around them. And not completely from the word of God that was given to them. I've been convicted. That's what we do when we disregard some passages of the Bible. We fill the gaps with cues from the world around us. And we take the God of the Bible and we twist him just enough to have a God with whom we are a little bit more comfortable. A God who looks like us and thinks like us and talks like us. A God who is okay with materialism and consumerism. A God who is okay with us being silent at work when we see something fishy because God loves us. He doesn't want us to lose our jobs. A God whose main concern for us is that we may have physical health and financial stability. A God who won't have us suffer hardship. A God who wants us to avoid dangerous extreme. And for, for that matter, a God who wants us to avoid danger altogether. When we redefine God according to our preferences, we might get a God who took Israel out of Egypt. We might get a God that even died for us in the cross. But ultimately, we will get a God that looks like a golden calf. A man-made God. And that is not God. And what Hosea is telling us is that worshiping God as though he was Baal is just as bad. It's the same thing as worshiping Baal himself. See, when we redefine God, we're being foolish because that's a way in which we reject God's help. But see, there was, this is hard to read, but we, we need to understand uh, this. That there was a, a purpose to, to all this. There was a purpose to Israel's dire situation. There was a purpose to this stern and bitter oracle. And Hosea explains it in verse 13. He says, The pangs of childbirth come for him, for Ephraim, for, for Israel. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. In this verse, Israel is likened both to a mother in labor and to a child that refuses to be born. 
And just as the pains of a woman in labor are supposed to bring about life, are supposed to produce birth, the punishment that Israel has suffered at that point and of this stern and unsettling oracle was meant to bring about repentance, what was meant to, to produce a return to Yahweh, to, to produce life, to have Israel be born again. But Israel was incapable of repenting. Israel refused to be born. And like a child that will not be born, Israel only had death as its future. And see, depending how uh, verse 14 is translated, how, depending how we choose to translate it, it either confirms the hopeless fate of Israel or it brings about a note of hope. It either conveys the message of no hope or it conveys the message of nothing but hope. The ESV translates it like this. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Both of these rhetorical questions that imply negative answers. Shall I ransom them? Shall I redeem them? No. Like an unwise child that refuses to be born, Israel refused to repent. And if these two sentences are translated as rhetorical questions, then the next, que- the next two questions are to be understood as Yahweh's commands to death and Sheol to do their thing. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Death, Sheol, why are you still standing there? Why are, you, why are they not dead yet? Go and do your thing. Because compassion, as the verse ends, is hidden from God's eye. Or repentance is hidden from God, God's eyes. In other words, God will not relent from this decision. There is absolutely no hope in this translation. On the other hand, the NIV translates it like this. I will deliver these people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? And here, what the last two questions mean is that since God is going to save Israel, then death and Sheol have no real power to kill. One verse, two completely opposite translations. And both of them are right. I'm convinced that God intentionally allowed this Hebrew verse to be ambiguous for us in English. Because God meant for us to read this verse both ways. See, in verse 14, it's meant to be read as a verse that conveys no hope because... As it is seen in verses 15 and 16, God did not relent from punishing Israel with the devastating attack of the Assyrians as he said he would in verses 7 and 8. And from history we know they were attacked and they were sent into exile. And being the subject of the punishment of exile, Israel died as a nation. Israel's foolish rejection of God's hell bounded them to be rejected by God as his people and therefore compassion was hidden from God's eyes. However, verse 14 is also meant to be read as nothing but hope. Because though God did not show mercy to Israel, though God rejected Israel as his people, 
When we understand that the metaphor of Lady Israel and her children, no mercy and not my people from chapter 1, has been fulfilled in chapter 13, then we understand that the death of Israel as a nation was nothing but the first part of God's plan of redemption for Israel. And then we can go back to verse 14 and read it as the message of, that conveys nothing but hope, as the way that the Apostle Paul translated it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because see, in chapter 1, immediately after God rejected Israel as his people, immediately after God promised not to show mercy to Israel through the naming of Gomer's children, God said in verse 10, Yet the number of Israel shall be like sand. And later he said, And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And Hosea 2.23, And I will have mercy and no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. See, God is the God of resurrection. He is in the business of bringing back to life that which was dead. And the people of Israel were dead in their sins. They were foolish and helpless without God's help. So helpless that they were, they were literally incapable of repenting. And you know what? We are no different than the people of Israel. We are dead. We are foolish, helpless, and incapable of repenting without the help of God. But see, in Christ... God provided the avenue. In Christ, the God of resurrection not only took upon himself this savage violence, this savage wrath that is so hard for us to read here, he took it upon himself and defeated death to reconcile Israel and us to himself. Not only he did that, but through Christ, God sent the help of the Holy Spirit, who is the one that enabled us to repent and be born again. In Christ, God has showed us mercy. In Christ, we who were called not his people are now called children of the living God. May we be filled by the Holy Spirit of God. That we may may not be foolish and that we may remember that our triune God is our only hope and our and our sure help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we worship you, Lord, and we thank you because you are not a God created by human hands. We didn't make you, you made us, Lord, and you are a just, a righteous, a holy God, Lord. And we thank you because we deserved your wrath. It was just. We deserved what is described in Hosea 13, Lord, but you made a way in which we could be reconciled to you, Lord. You made a way in which we can be brought from death to life. Father, we worship you that you may, we we ask you that you may help us to be filled with your spirit, that we may constantly seek to know you in your word, and that we may worship you and know a God, not a God that is made in our own hands. And Lord, it is in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Every uh, four uh, 
Sunday of the month, we have communion uh, here at Cole. And uh, if you're visiting here, but you are uh, you believe in Christ and Christ is your Savior, then you are welcome to have uh, communion with us. This is a great uh, Sunday. This is a great, great way to finish this message. Such a hard message to hear. The wrath of God. But Jesus took it upon himself. And now we remember him with communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God's body broken for us.
In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God's blood shed for us. Lord Jesus, how great is your love. How great is your love, Father. We, uh, we thank you, Father, because without understanding your holiness and your, your righteousness and the seal of your righteousness, Lord, we, uh, we could not really appreciate um, um, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Father, we uh, worship you and we pray that you may fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we may worship you as you are. And it is in your name that we pray all these things. Amen.